Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 116. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. From high atop the stately Lee's Comics mansion, we bring you the Lee's Comics Radio Hour with tonight's special guests, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, Cerebus the Aardvark, and yours truly, Wally Fields. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store, based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping, backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar. Scroll down to Sellers and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hey, Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkeys' Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this! This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys! Plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover. And this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? 
Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> Get headquartered. A timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. The Warren Kramer book is still being proofed, and I'm still working on my Mad Book and Kool-Aid Men articles, as well as articles about Richie Rich comic strip and Charlton Comics. I'm also working on a book about Pac-Man. Letters, we get letters. Here's one from Peter Werner, who wrote, Great interview, and it was fun learning more about Sherry Flanagan's background. I wish there had been more talk about Trots and Bonnie itself, and what she has to say about the concept of it. She goes into that a bit in the old comic book confidential doc, but I'm always keen to hear more. As to the French Trots and Bonnie anthology, I can report it's still definitely available. I was in Paris in October 2019 and saw multiple brand new copies of it in a comic book shop there. I would have snapped it up if I had all read French. It was seeing that that got me thinking about Sherry's work and how much I'd love to see it in print again in English. I am kind of wondering if this new anthology will have everything that was republished in the French 1981 edition, since there's such squeamishness today on anything to do with adolescence and sexuality, which is dealt with in a very direct and politically incorrect way in some of her stories. On today's show, we feature the man who helped put on Woodstock, plus wrote songs like The Pied Piper and Just a Room. Here he is, Artie Kornfeld. Okay, this is Mark Arnold with Fun Ideas Podcast, and today I have Charles Rosene, who's brought me some great guests, and today is another great guest, Artie Kornfeld. How are you, Artie? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for coming on with us, Artie. It means a lot. You are uh, a legend in the music business. And if anybody doesn't know who he is, he helped put on this production of Woodstock. <laughs> well, not Woodstock. the DVD, but the, the original production. <laughs> Woodstock is just one of so many credits. Artie, how many total songs, I'm afraid to ask, how many did you, total songs have you written or, or produced or put out? Well, I've written, I, I've written around 300. Wow. Or, or 300. Wow. I'm not sure. I haven't lived to be in my <laughs> I don't know. And how many how many uh, top forty charting hits are in that? Well, I have I have four legend awards, which means multi multi millions of plays. I, I, you know, after a certain amount of time, the copyrights. And I never thought of that. I always loved the fact that I was making music. So, well, I wasn't that cautious to protect myself. I think I would be older and not in the studio. So I keep thinking I'm going to do that, but probably not. I just was like, I'm, I'm just trying to keep the spirit alive that we had, because after all, we were, we were a part of the greatest peaceful protest in history. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I wish I was, was younger and I really had this, the strength, you know, to, uh, to be more active. But we'll see, because I'm feeling better every day. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. You know, it, it's like a laundry list of amazing things you've given us, along with Woodstock, so many hits, and you've worked with so many acts and so many bands. You know, especially especially in the '60s and '70s, right? Was that was that mo- most your 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 golden era? Uh, no, because after the '70s, 
the first thing I did was take this unknown band called Survivor out of Chicago and manage them for two years, get them the Rocky Three thing with, with Sylvester Stallone, and then walk on a principal when they fight when they fired the lead singer. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, and I just said, I just walked in and tore up my contract and said, you know what? And I, it was a loss to me, but it, it, this was ever about money anyway. So uh, anyway. What, but, what? Uh, you know, but uh, but I'm proud of Eye of the Tiger. You know, every time I hear it, I think of one. You know, <laughs> it just, you know, it was just strange. The call from Stallone and all that kind of stuff. You know, could you guys do a song about a tiger? And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I sort of, I sort of a good request. And then he said, no, no, I'm wear a jacket with a tiger. And I told the kids, you know, I think within four days I had the demo, which was almost a master. You know, I just brought it to the, the, the captain to Neil's place, so I think it was Colombo, and uh, uh, Nico Bolas uh, finished the record. Anyway. I have a question for you. Um, so um, we're uh, working on a Turtles project, and um, there's one song you wrote for them that I know about uh, called Just a Room, and I think it was on their second album. It might have been their first. I don't, I get the albums confused. Um, did you write that song intentionally for the Turtles, or was it just uh, among a, a number of cuts that they were going, demos that they were going through, and they just chose one? I, you know, actually, you know, in, in a certain community, Steve and I became very, like, you know, popular writers, you know, so it's like... Uh, we sort of wrapped up in the middle of it because it's never, it was never a business to me. And it's always trying to make change with what I'm doing. And you know. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, I, you remember that I, specific I, I, song, uh, Artie? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> you know, it was, it was one of those times where we sat down with Steve and we just, uh, we, we might have been aiming for, um, you know, uh, sort of a, you know, happy together kind of feeling, but different, you know? Yes. And yeah, because, you know, we were, we were build building, you know, writers, that era. Were you, and you really learned how to write, you know? And that's you, how you do it. Were you pleased with the way it came out? Because sometimes you write a song one way, and an artist performs it a different way. Yeah, well, yeah, no, but it's, it's a different part of my world, because don't think of the other stuff I do, it's like, you know, breaking the color barrier at FM radio with uh, Tracy Chapman, Fast Car, being the first black artist to be played on FM radio. Mm -hmm. you, know, I, you know, and since my mother was a founder of the Freedom Rides, it, rides I, I'm keeping it going in my own way. Uh -huh. you, know, you know, I know I'm not on any, on any crusade, but aren't we all? <laughs> if we're still around, we're doing what's happening. So I guess we're, we're sort of a crusade. True, one way or another, yes. Um, yeah, you know. Are there are there any songs that stick out that um, you were more proud of than others? Like, if someone put a gun to your head and said, "What were your favorite songs that you had hits with?" Would would any what would come to mind? Oh, I I don't know. <laughs> I guess the, I guess the greatest overall was the councils during the park and other things because I was the producer, the manager, the writer. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess. Yeah, that has the most hits at BMI. When I was at the NAM convention, they gave me uh, three more legend awards. 
And that's a multi-million plays on a song performances. Oh, it's a classic. It's one of the one of the best pop songs ever written. It's so it's it still holds up, and the vocal, every yeah. arrangement, everything about it is amazing. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I I I don't hear I don't hear a lot of uh, commercials. I don't know. I don't pay attention to it, but it really amazes me sometimes because I'll like you know I was looking at, at uh, whatever whatever it is YouTube. And I and I have, there's a song I wrote called Benson Has Blues, and there's about 15 covers on it all over Europe, and I couldn't believe it comes up and it says Benson Has Blues by Al Pacino, and it cracked me up because there was Al Pacino singing the song I wrote that was in Europe about four times, but it was just he did it so great. But I, then I remember it's called Benson Has Blues, and that's the neighborhood. Carol <laughs> Kane was, or I was, the guy sure. that was, was there. Sure. A lot of people were from the entertainment industry. Of course, Brooklyn so, Benson, so of course. Yeah, yeah, you know, but now I'm, I, I got the benefit of being a leather town kid, you know, and, you know, living in, you know, being a college class person, and, and then decided that, but this, I wanted the music. What did mom yeah. and dad say about that? Oh no! They well, you know, they 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 only see it in my life that whatever I really went for was for the right reasons. Yes. And and uh, we're only be a positive force, you know, to whatever to whatever we contribute that that thing to that we ship it out every day. Were, were you part of the Brill building? Were you part of that? Like, uh, oh yeah, I've I've been put on lists as the top three people that come out of the Brill building and. You know, and you know, it's you know, like Neil Young said in Rolling Stone, and that's that's better than the billboard because Neil Young, who doesn't say these kind of things, just says in his book, his new book, he says, Artie, Artie Cornfell is the best music man in the history of America. Wow, and that that sort of knocked me over because you know, I, I did, you know, I did, you know, basically run the company for him and Elliot when I took, uh, after Tracy Chapman, which is managed by Elliot, that's, that's how I got with Neil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love working on, on the Freedom album, because uh, I don't really promote records for anybody, you know, and, and all of a sudden, because of personal tragedies in my life, I didn't want to write and produce, you know, because I figured I've already done it, you know. Yeah, that's why I never wanted, was going to do another Woodstock, because, you know what, I did it. <laughs> you know what? Another one would just be a money trip, and I, I didn't do it for money anyway. Right. Yeah, I really do want to have stop the war in Vietnam. So I think I, I want to bring it up now because I'm just letting people know, hey, if you organize peaceful protests, you could accomplish a lot. That's for sure. I have a quick question. So I know you've done hundreds of songs that have done well. What was your first, and when was that? My first was um, my first song I wrote with Jan Berry from Jan and Dean, mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, oh, and it was, it was the follow-up to my boyfriend's back by the Angels, and it was called "I Adore Him," mm-hmm. and it went to number, it went top ten. I Adore Him was released by by um, Jan and Dean. No, by the Angels. Oh, by it the angel. It was their follow-up. It, it, it was a follow-up to my boyfriend's back. Oh, oh gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Yeah, you know, every time that happens, you know, you basically, even though I'm not competitive with, with music, you're basically competing with, you know, another 200 writers that have a song for that artist. Because that's the way it was in those days when artists weren't necessarily, you know, writers. Yes. Did you ever want to be the artist yourself, or were you happy uh, writing? Well, I was. I, I was... I was I did seven songs on the I Got You Babe tour. I was a changing times with the original Pied Piper. And, well, that's true. And that was really, that was top twenty. Yes. And, and that tour was a good tour, you know, because they had three songs in the top ten. And you know, and that's where Danny Hutton opened, and that's where he met Corey Wells, who was in the band. You know, and that's how I met Corey. You know, well, I, I hate to say, you know, a lot of these people are R.I.P. So you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Three Dog Night was a, a monster powerhouse band of hits there for a while. Yeah, well, I watched them, you know, because I know them from when he was, they, you know, they were playing, you know, the, they were the band for the three or four acts that were on that tour. Yeah. You know, and yeah. And I, I guess, I, you know, it was the first show I ever did at Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, it wasn't a club on Long Island. It was uh, there was about six thousand people, and, and it was interesting. You know, the band was great. The band was the band was better than we were, but I don't know. We were good. I I think so because you know people love it. There's all the songs we wrote. They never came out. People hit on. Was was there was there a Crispin and Crispin St. Peter, or was that just the name of the band? <laughs> no, that was the person. He was like a he was. Like a sexable uh, singer in uh, Europe. Uh huh. Yeah, he was a good-looking guy, and he was—he was very big in England. He, he was pretty huge in England, actually. You know, and yeah, Christian St. Peter, right? Yeah, right. When I heard first heard the record, I didn't like it because it was too pop for me. Because our version was folk rock, definitely. And, and the level of all musicians got a mighty Steve Gadd, Tony Levin, Kenny, Kenny Asher on piano, Hugh McCracken on guitar, Sam Bowen playing sax, you know, Michael Kamen on, on electric stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was great to be able to make records. I'm glad I got to do that for so many years. I, lo I love that. Making music, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, do I miss it? No, <laughs> I did. I did. I did. You know, I did it. You know, I keep saying I'm going to go in and do one more, but it's going to be by me because I'm really You're very. <laughs> as a, I'm like I'm a great acoustic solo. You know, and I, just going over some of the songs and some of the lyrics. I said, God Almighty, I was saying this was going to happen. You know, thirty years ago in the song. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like uh, I did a solo album after what's that called, The Artie Cornfield Tree. Mm -hmm. And I basically, Uma Kraken arranged it, and Joey Akis is my engineer, I directed plan, and uh, Tell me a little bit about, uh, going back a little bit, uh, you worked at Capitol Records for a number of years. Uh, what did you do there, and uh, did you promote any artists or anything, or work with any artists? Uh, how, what did you do, I guess, this is the best thing. Actually, I ran the East Coast office, basically. Okay. You know, and I was, uh, I, I was, I was like the VP director of uh, of uh, rock 
And it was the first time any label ever had a, a rock department, mm. you know, in, in our business. So the capital, that's how capital put it out. I didn't put it out that way. You know, they do PR. I, I, I wasn't doing it for myself. Mm-hmm. They never seemed to be that critical to me. Did you yeah. sign any acts uh, on Capitol? Well, you know, one, one star came out of, of being a Capitol was I produced The Wind in the Willows, which is a great album, but, you know, it just didn't have the attention of the people higher up. And uh, that, but what they introduced was the female singer, was uh, Debbie Harry. Oh you know, wow! And, mm-hmm. and I was glad, even even after uh, I I left to do Woodstock, you know, when uh, when she was a play, she was a player boy bunny for a while in, in the restaurant in New York. Yeah, uh, I I helped her through some hard times, and we were friends because we had recorded it. And, you know, you're in the studio for six months with someone. And, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, she she was great, you know. But, you know, I, I never thought that she was going to happen when she did. And I tried to help once I heard about it, but she happened to be on a friend of mine's label, you know, Private Stock. So, and, and, uh, I even did a record for Private Stock myself. Private Stock. So, so many yeah. times, Artie, you know, the an artist or, or I'm sorry, a composer writes a song. It's a hit for an artist and they never meet the artist. They never, you know, come in contact, but you were beyond that. You had uh, so much to do with so many acts and so many artists, but um, for the sake of the turtles book, what was your um, relationship or friendship with uh, Howard and Mark Flo and Eddie? Were you friends with any of the turtles? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Steve and I, with our writing, actually, as writers, we became the changing times because our songs were so, so folk rock, you know, and that's what was happening then. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I was happy together because a friend of, two friends of mine produced it. And, you know, and it was through the company that I had been the director of uh, of, of A&R, which means artists and the repertoire or whatever. Yeah. 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 Was was uh were you involved with White Whale at all? That was I guess their record label. No, I knew what was going on. I, I didn't particularly like it. No. You know? No. Yeah. I you know, I, I knew what was going on because you know, people sort of know me because I'm I'm pretty open. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I can keep a secret and I am candid but anyway I try to be. Mm-hmm. It's hard it's hard, you know, if you know something and you think it helps you in a way that like, I'll just see if it, it affects anybody. Any any stories about um, Mark and Howard? What do you remember about them as 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 performers or as individuals? Oh, they were they were great to be around. You know, they were they were very close friends with my writing partner Steve Duboff. Yes, and they were, and you know, and I I was married with with. Uh, a child, you know, you know, passed away since, but I was married with a child. It was, I don't know, it was, it, it was fun to go over and work with the guys in the, in the apartment or the rehearsal hall, the, Steve and I, when we were teaching them um, just to roam, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, what we always did that is we played the way we did, you know, I, as a producer, I'm one of the people who said, you know, I, I had sometimes arrangements, but I'd rather say the musicians. 
Because my guys are like the best. They are. Steve Gadd is the best drummer, and I started them out. I'm the first person I ever used them. Steve Gadd, yeah. You know, and Tony Lennon and David Sanborn and Kenny Asher. Yeah. Yeah, you know, those, I mean, that, they, were, they were a lot better musicianship than the Wrecking Crew. And the Wrecking Crew, I know that, not because when I did the JMD and stuff, it was just, you know, with, with the Wrecking Crew. But they weren't called that. It was Glenn and Leon, you know. Right, right, yeah. right. They weren't yeah. called the yeah. Wrecking Crew then. But it's a, it's crazy how many uh, songs and, and artists they they played on. Were they on the Cow Sills as well or no? My guys was the the guys from the Wrecking Crew on on the Cow Sills recordings. No, not at all. It was all New York musicians in Philadelphia. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, because Jimmy Wisner arranged it, and Jimmy arranged a lot of other acts that had been hits. You know, Strawberry Alarm Clock, things like that. Mm -hmm. He was a very creative arranger, but uh, you know, I listened to it and I just say. I can't believe I got that on four track and one mix, you know, with all those different things happening because I was so at one with the song and so I comfort with it because, you know, because, you know, when I first said I was going to produce these kids, you know, that Mercury had dropped and I, I resigned in protest so I left my guaranteed income and I had a family behind, but it was, I knew this was going to happen. And that's what I told my friends, so I was sort of teasing me. I said, listen, America's apple pie and coffee. I said, and you know what? Uh, this, this, people are going to relate to this family trip. And you know what? I'm going to write the song that's going to make them happen. Yeah. And, and you know, and a year later, Steve and I wrote to write in the park. I don't know where that came from. He played a chord in the summation. I just said, that's all I said in the park. Raindrops falling are, and that was, you know, within an hour and a half, it was done. And how come it wasn't? How come it wasn't called the Flower Girl, which is what everyone thought was the title at the time? Well, it was, but then the president of MGM called me and said, "Already, oh, yeah, we have a problem because we don't, we think it's going to hurt the single if we put it out um, because of the Scott McKenzie record. If you go into San Francisco with flowers mm -hmm. in your hair." So, you know, so they asked me to hold off. Uh-huh. You, know, right. you know, and I, I never, you know, I got to high levels, but I was never a dictator, you know. <laughs> you know, my right. opinion was, I, you know, let's, let's just get it done whatever way is right. Right. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know everything. That's why, I, I mean, if, if there was an arrangement for McCracken, it was one of my best friends, but it's so was to Beast Man. I really miss that guy, but Hugh McCracken was incredible. Yeah, you know, if you should, you should just AOL and look Google him, you'll be shocked. You know, and he's he was a friend of mine because we worked on about thirty albums together. And he, right. I, I really miss him. So you know, I, I really had the benefit of working with the best. You know, that's why when people compare, you know, they ask me about Santana or Clapton, you know. Now, Clapton is so good, he could have been a great studio musician, too, if he wanted to. Sure. Because he's that versatile. I don't think Carlos could have been a great studio musician. Oh, <laughs> He'd be locked into just that one market. Because mm -hmm. it would shrink, and he'd be, and he'd be on, on, on a Mexican-American label. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be, be, you know, and... Uh, 
I, you know, and I, and I say for the episode of the Woodstock movie, when I had my show, I interviewed Michael Shreve, the drummer, twice, because that's what interested me in Santana or Woodstock. You know, I, I think his drum solo is what made um, Santana happen. Not, not Carlos is, is fills or anything. They weren't that spectacular in the melody. They, they had just started rehearsing that song. It was hardly finished. Soul Survivor. And so what happened with the Shreve, he, they, they stopped playing. They were playing solos, and all of a sudden they look at him. So he has to play a drum solo. And he's a jazz from a little rock band, a Latin rock band. He's a jazz. So, you know, so we uh, just... Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember seeing it, you know, when it came out. And I remember leaving the theater thinking, oh, my God, that's one of the best drummers I've ever seen. And, and that stood out was, was the Santana drummer, never knowing his name and never knowing, you know, uh, any, any of the history behind that. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, I really believe that his drum solo and, and the movie that I, that I made, you know, you know, but we all had to be involved or it wouldn't have happened. All of us, you, me. Um, anyway, I wish that flash sometimes it'll blank it out. That's okay. My, <laughs> my question about um, the, the film is, uh, if that if we know that Woodstock itself lost a lot of money, was was the Woodstock film a savior at all? Did that did that help defray any of? Oh, well, you know that's that's the history. You know that's all world history. It's not even music industry. You know it's a different industry. You know, that, that was well, just that I pulled that off the way I did. You know, it's just fate. It's really fate. Yeah. You know, you know. I mean, I take in the kid who has no experience, basically. Mm -hmm. We become best friends in one night shooting pool in my apartment in New York, and I'm already the vice president of Capitol, and I'm 23 years old, 24 years old. Yes, you know, it was it was it was a great time of life because all the things I thought I wanted, I got. You know, and then I went back more. Then I went back more, more to my roots. I loved my high school years; they were great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I liked that we lived in Levittown because you know, cops cops didn't make a lot of money. I wasn't allowed to say cops. I had to say policemen. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to because he was never. He was. He was a sweet on my floor. Yeah, I, I really had great parents. Very yeah. challenging, huh? After Woodstock, was there ever uh, a need? And I think you already answered this, but I'll just ask again: Is like, was there ever a need to top it and do something even greater than that, or do you feel that that's what you want to be remembered for uh, as the the rock concert of the century, basically. Well, to tell you the truth, Paul Simon read my book, The Pipe Piper Woodstock, and it tells the whole trip of acts that happened too quick, why drugs come into it, how I promoted Woodstock, you know, and uh, it's not an ego book. There's not one picture of me with a, you know, with a, with an artist. Although I think it's pretty crazy that I avoided that for the movie, but I wound up being that famous Shadow Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner. It cracked me up, you know, because <laughs> I remember being there, but did I, did I really, after having like this uh, off the walls, but, and, and based on love, it stopped the war, too, you know, and, and it happened that way, you know. I'm just grateful that I, I got to be a part of that whole thing. I mean, everybody in, on that field was just as much a part as I was to Woodstock. Mm -hmm. you know, 
and so are you. That's why we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan. I mean, I, you can't see it, but I'm holding up the DVD once you see the video. Uh, it's just, you know, a fantastic film, fantastic music. Uh, I mean, I know Rhino a few years ago put out like a big multi-disc set um, on vinyl and CD. Did you have anything to do with that project? No, not really. Okay. Okay. Or, any, you know, also the DVD I have is like the, the director's cut, and it's the 40th anniversary edition. Do you have any say-so on any future Woodstock projects that come out based on the original well, Woodstock? No, or you no? know what? I, for me personally, I didn't do Woodstock. I had no money monetary for it in my mind. You know, I made the, I made the movie deal three days before. You know, <laughs> one has turned it down 50 times. <laughs> that but I know the, the president of Warner's Music Publishing, and I know the chairman of the board from the councils. And uh, four days before the festival, I, I beat them up for uh, 35 hours with extreme, and they kept saying. And then finally, the chairman of the board, after about 35 hours, said, you know, Artie, look, Warner Brothers is almost bankrupt. Uh, you know, documentaries aren't happening, you know, and our movies are not doing good at the box office, you know, and uh, and I finally had told them so much about what this is going to help stop the war and this, everybody's going to be there in peace, I'll make sure, I'll promote it right, and uh, I finally said, for some reason, I said, well, think of it, after they gave it a whole thing about the money and documentaries aren't happening, so for some reason, after beating up and you gotta realize, one is Freddie Weintraub, who started Dylan at the bitter end, you know, and he was he had become vice president, but and he was a friend of mine, and it was just it was just a miracle trip how the movie came together. I, if, to me, I knew it would it would happen, mm -hmm. so I was one for one in calling someone, and they and they saw me. They didn't want to see me because they didn't believe it, it could ever happen, but they made a deal, you know, based on my past dealings. So it pays to be nice to people. Yeah. All right. It's yeah. It's how many people you can affect positively. You know? Unfortunately, you got all that on film, you know, because it's like it could have just been a concert that wasn't recorded and nobody saw it except for the people there and be forgotten. But now, every generation can watch it or listen to it. Yeah. No. No. I Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to say it because it's not egotistical, but it's historical, you know, and, and the real truth is, it was, you know, the, the, what it really became was something that was, the festival itself was miraculous, it's a miracle. And I know, I would never do anything to make money off Woodstock, and I spoke, I've spoke on radio and done interviews and been in three, on three, four continents, you know, and uh, I never did a profit. You know, and people keep offering me if you put your name on this concert. And I just won't do it unless I, you know, I could affect the promotion. Mm -hmm. I think that's my, why I was so good when I did record promotion after I, my wife and daughter passed away and I didn't really want to write, you know. And I, I just, and I couldn't believe all of a sudden I, I was, you know, I was running the careers basically and doing all the marketing and promotion instead of the record companies for really top artists. Artie, was it you who wrote the book, The Pied Piper of Woodstock? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that book. And is that still in print? I don't know. 
somebody in Europe sent me two, three of them that they bought to try and get back to them. Uh -huh. So I guess they're still available. You know, I don't really keep up with it. You know, it's just, um, I, I was surprised because I already had like four walls go over 5,000 on Facebooks. And so I had a lot of people that you know, wanted to hear the way I think because they, they know that was part of this miracle. You know, and all I basically tell them is that, you know, anybody listening to this, you're the reason that I was, could be that part of your miracle. It goes both ways. Yeah. So. Very, very modest and very, uh, very generous of you. But you know, you talk about uh, songwriting, and and you left uh, a solid job at Capitol. I mean, you you were an established record person, and you left it to gamble on this <laughs> crazy concert in the Catskills. I mean, that's 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 ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? I just, you know, I've been so lucky in my life, you know, a lot of sorrow, you know, I, you know, I hate to lose family, you know, but uh, like I know how Kobe Bryant would have felt if he lived, you know, so, mm -hmm. so I, I went through that kind of cathartic feeling, you know, so just the fact that the first thing out of the box is I discovered this band Survivor. I had Lita Ford, you know, you know and, and the record company who, who had, uh, weird acts like Al Yankovic and Survivor uh, <laughs> was signed to them and Epic didn't want to put out their album. So anyway, it took me two years and, you know, I was really good. I never really managed, but the first time out, I was on a tour and uh, the 20 cities were Triumph, which was a very hot band from Canada. And the mm -hmm. second tour was with Tommy Mottola and, uh, and uh, Hole and Oates. And that was a huge concert tour. Mm -hmm. And Survivor was around, and also the deal was set for the you know Rocky Three. Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, I was I was, I was sort of happy that happened, and I worked for the money because uh, when they got rid of the lead singer, you know, I just told them, even though I was invested in them and I put time into them, um, when they got rid of the lead singer, who I knew his voice was so critical to why they happened. Yeah. Right, right. But, you know, and. Uh, you know, we they like sort of stabbed him in the back. So I just told them, you know, I want, I'm out. You know, forget if you, we don't, you don't know me anything. I wish you the best. And I told them, like, you know what? Without Dave Bickle, you're never going to have another hit. You know what? <laughs> they still haven't. Yeah, I have one more Woodstock question. It actually has to do with the movie that Ang Lee directed years and years later called Taking Woodstock. I was wondering if you saw that and what you thought about it, and if it was any way accurate. No, you know, my wife lived in Woodstock, and I discussed this, and no, I didn't even see it. And, you know, it was like, I wanted attention in those days, you know. And I love Michael. We're the best friends that you could have. But, uh, um, you know, you talk about it, and I flash back to that time. Mm -hmm. It was very, uh, very tender time. Mm -hmm. uh, wait, what was I talking about? Because I lost my track. Well, I was just asking about uh, Ang Lee's Taking Woodstock, which oh, yeah, seems no, like it's fictionalized more than accurate. Well, you know what? It's all bullshit, you know. Michael <laughs> and, and, and let Ang Lee interview him. The reason it happened is a, is a cool reason, because... Uh, 
the writer, you know, and, and Ang Lee had been lovers at one point in their life. They were gay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it was sort of like uh, the way it happened, but it's the whole lie, you know. He had, mm-hmm. he had nothing to do with why we got that site, you know. Michael's story is like from the moon. My story is the actual truth of what happened. <laughs> Now the accurate story, yours is is that detailed well in the that Pied Piper book that you wrote. So that's the book to get. Well, I don't know, but you know what? If if on the Woodstock fifty, if Bob Geldof who did Live Aid, right? Right. Yes. If, if he, if, if we had never talked, and he called me because he wanted to interview me for a Woodstock special he was doing on the BBC, mm-hmm. and he interviewed me for two hours. You know, and I took that as an honor because you know he. He pulled off why they and you know I, I look up to that as a great a great event. You know, Woodstock will overshadow any big event because see, it's a different time. Yeah, that it was. A, it was, We did it on the exact right weekend, with the exact amount of rain, with the exact number of people, and you know the fact that there was maybe a couple of fist fights was uh, four to five hundred thousand people. You know that. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle to me, you know. I mean, I know what happened. I know that I try to program people before with radio stuff that no one had done. And, you know, it was funny because Gildo said, I wish we were together because if you and I were working together on Live Aid, we'd still be doing Live Aid every year. Wow. <laughs> Artie, yeah. yeah, you're credited with writing Dead Man's Curve with not only Jan Barry, but Roger Christian and Brian Wilson. Yeah, Roger Christian had nothing to do with the song. <laughs> Lou Adler, who ran Screen Jam, somehow always managed. If you look at the Beach Boys stuff, you see, and Roger Christian was a big disc jockey at the big station in L.A. And by, I guess by putting his name on songs, they made sure that stuff got played. You know, cause you, in, those days, in those days, you could break a record, meaning it could reach its epitome in sales. Right. You know, you know just by... Uh, just by going after it, you know. It was, it was a different time. You know, it was all part of the, the training because I had a great, you know, people don't know, talk about it because, you know, on the field, you know, got so much attention. But it did because I made the movie deal. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. yeah. But so, yeah, so. They had, they had to fly widely to meet me on the, on the roof of the uh, Pan Am building in New York to sign papers. And I gave him a check for 100000 from Warner's. Because he was up there with, you know, he had uh, Scorsese on his, uh, yeah, Scorsese was on his crew. Marty taught a college class on photography, and Scorsese was one of his students. Mm-hmm. So he hired him to help him on the Woodstock movie. But they mm-hmm. were sitting up there, and there was no money for Michael to, to give them, you know, to, you know, even buy film. Wow. So once he left me, he immediately bought film, and that's when the Woodstock movie started. The stuff at the beginning, Michael had shot a shot of himself. You know, I didn't even know about it until I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, even, you mentioned every school is at. I'm very much at peace with the whole trip. Good, good. You mentioned Scorsese. It sounds like, or looks like, he learned from you in that he did The Last Waltz, he did Shining Light, Shine a Light with Rolling Stones, he did a documentary on George Harrison, and one on Bob Dylan. So it seems like he learned a lot from watching your Woodstock. Mm. Martin Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, 
Yeah, that whole crowd, that whole crowd is very talented. So mm -hmm. most of the stuff you wrote was with your friend Steve. The Italian Triangle. <laughs> most of the stuff you wrote was with your friend Steve Duboff. But you also wrote stuff with Jerry Goffin, which surprised me because I only thought that he wrote with Carol King. And also you wrote with Tony Wine, who's a good friend of Ron Dante and uh, was one of the was one of the Archies, right? Oh, she wrote Groovy Kind of Love. I would put that first. Yes. You know, yeah. And I had one hit with Tony, and I forgot who did it. It was, the, it was the Cookies, the ones who did Chains. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. We, I had two or three songs on that album. Right. I, I also had two or three songs on the, on the, uh, the Drag City album at the same time. Isn't that crazy? Well, Mark, I think we should tell your audience that by 1966, Artie had written over 75 songs that charted on the Billboard charts and was participated in over 150 albums. And this was by 1966, even before the world had ever heard of a play a thing called Woodstock. <laughs> well, you know what? It's like, uh, you know, when I come up with that figure, I was counting every single thing and all the hours and all, all over. Really, it's a, you really have to have a stamina and have really have a desire to be in that world. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, did you work constantly? Because to get that level of productivity, it just seemed like you're working around the clock. No, that's just whatever power there is gave me that particular ability to do those things. And uh, there's no choice, you know. <laughs> I, a lot of things I do for sociological reasons. I, I really, my main goal is to help an artist that I'm affecting his career happen for them. Mm -hmm. you know, listen, uh, I was happy when I had one, one hit record, you know, as a writer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you think about having a hit and then to have, I think out of 350 songs that BMI has, I think 300 of them are, were redone. Like, I didn't know until recently, Del Shannon did the Pied Piper, uh, Bobby Fuller, and I, I loved I Fought the Lore. He did the Pied Piper. There was millions of records of the Pied Piper all around the world. I hope you got royalties. You know, you, you sound, when you say that, how much you cared about the artist, it sounds very altruistic. You remind me of a gentleman who I don't know if you knew, Sid Bernstein. Oh, yeah, I know Sid very well. Yeah. He had that same laid back but sincere love of what he did and love for the artist. And that comes through with what you're saying, too. Yeah, well, you know, Bernstein actually, uh, he, he wanted me to um, do a, a free concert with him on a, on a field closer to where the Woodstock stage was with Bill Hanley, with the original stage on a flatbed and with the sound. And we just were going to make it free up front, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and then Michael put—I was in New York, and Michael had paid for me to take the. I wasn't taking, uh, you know, I was taking trains because I was still trying to recover from losing my daughter, so I couldn't fly. I sort of became a little agoraphobic. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then Michael called me, and he said, "Oh, he was almost crying." He said, "Oh, you aren't you going to come up here?" You know. <laughs> and I said, "Michael, I'm so opposed. I mean." I, I mean, the fact that you're using the name Woodstock, being sponsored by a record company and Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> I just is so opposed to everything that Woodstock was about and why it happened. Mm -hmm. And it won't, ha it won't happen. You won't have magic. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. and, 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 and you know what? And 
was a big loss, maybe $20 million on that trip. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's not my business, really, you know. <laughs> actually, I, I actually, to tell you the truth, I made Michael pay me to be there. Wow. Yeah, I told him I didn't, I didn't agree with it, you know, like, you know, and, you know, I, I got to do interesting things. Like, I got to be in the famous Green Day mud fight with the audience, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which actually, when I was on, I was on stage with Green Day, you know, just covered in mud, just like the back at Woodstock was crazy. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It, it ended, it ended on a horrible note because it was, you know, it was done for greed. And, you know, I didn't, I was the only partner that didn't do Woodstock to make money. I did it just to do it. Yeah. You know, you know, I knew it had something had to be done, and I don't know. It's a message from somewhere. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. Did you mention Green Day or Greed Day? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that, you know, they had a couple of cuts that I like, and I, I haven't liked much since the, since the 1980s. <laughs> no, so when the 90s said I started to tune out of music. Uh -huh. But the things I produced, I did a great album on the internet by Davin McCoy in Atlanta, and that album was really good, you know. It didn't happen because he didn't promote it, and him and I had split up. Uh -huh. But I, I did, you know, I, I, I did great mixes on that. Yeah, by the way, the mix on the rain in the park was a miracle, too, because I got that in one take, and that there's a lot happening on that record. Oh, my gosh, with the sound effects and the rain, and the, yeah, amazing. Yeah, the, I, well, I said, you know, that the weird thing is when I, I, I you know, I, it was just a trip. It was going to be a rough mix, but uh, I listened to maybe 100 tapes that we rented of rain. Because it came to the point that I had to put rain over the whole thing, and I had to find the right rain. <laughs> so they, they, SIR, the big studio rental place, sent over about 60 different rains. And, and none of the rains were the right rain for that song. Mm -hmm. or, or for what I was thinking when I wrote it, when I came up with the lyric. And then... Uh, uh, Where was I going? Give me a hint. You were talking about the rain and you had to get the right sound. Oh, of the right. Rain. Okay. So I, I went through like 50 tapes and none of them were right. And they're going to boil the, the, you know, they have a big court, you know, where they have tapes because they probably went to four studios that day. <laughs> and uh, and as they're going to leave, I would see a tape and it says bacon frying in a pan. And, you know, you know, I learned a lot from George Martin too. And, <laughs> and and uh, I just said to myself, I wonder what it would be like if uh, we recorded bacon frying in a pan, mm -hmm. you know. And if we did one of those stretching the tapes, you know, to get that delay with it, I, I bet it would sound like raindrops. And mm -hmm. we put it on, and damn, that's the rain in the rain in the park. I, when I saw the castles for the first time in my 40 years, about a year and a half ago, yeah. Uh, I told them that story and I blew their mind because they didn't know. Oh, they didn't even know. Wow. <laughs> no, they weren't they were right there. I missed it and Shelly, I just, wow. you know. <laughs> Lady Brooks also too, you know, I'm not sure. You know, it, it, those are fun days, studio, making music were good days. And then I just, you know, I just learned the truth that I did my, my best records, you know, were never heard on radio because I wasn't, didn't promote. You know, I wasn't a promoter. I was a writer and a producer and a manager sometimes. 
know, but I didn't, I didn't promote. So I just said to myself, you know what, if I have something I believe in, I'm going to promote it myself. Artie, any, any uh, memories, if, I, if, uh, if we can flash back to the guys from the Turtles, any, any um, experience? Yeah, Eating, eating at the the, uh, the kosher restaurant by the bowling alley, uh, <laughs> bowling on Sunday with Dubov, stuff like that. You know, from my friends. Yeah. You know, Steve was a lot closer than I was because I had a family and I had other things going on. Right. You know. So you know, and you know, now was a part where Steve was at his trip in Malibu, and I was into my trip, just making. That's when I was partners with Audie Rip, and I. You know, I had Lita Ford, and I was trying to work with Bert Summer, but I didn't think we were going to get back together. Bert Summer is the only Woodstock name that wasn't that never became famous. Is that right? Well, well, you know what? With the internet show I did with over 20 million hits on it, you know, the one hour a week, yeah. and me playing Bert Summer on almost every show. And then he wrote a song. We're all playing in the same band. It really is a song of hope. You know, so I I put it out on my label, and uh, I promised Bert I would get him a gold record when I signed him <laughs> years, before, years before. And uh, you know, and I, I you know, so his kid Jesse will get the money because we never did it for the money. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, but I was glad when it happened. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, the record went, you know, with me Casey Kasem's top twenty or whatever that is, and it was. <laughs> It was like 19 at Billboard and uh, 14 at Cashbox, and the, and the album went gold, you know. And uh, and Bert got a, you know, I you know I didn't even know. I hadn't checked on the royalties so in so long, you know, because you sort of get to the point where it, it just you work real hard and you have this equity. You never did it for that reason, and you didn't even know it was going to come in. So when you're young, you make stupid things. You, you know, on the way up, you sign stuff away because there were a lot of there were a lot of gangsters back in the fifties in the music industry. Mm. Yeah. You know, it was great to come through that. And then the other side, it was great to go from two track and when four track hit it, we, you know, don't forget if you were a Nevin's person or screen gems writer, you know, myself, Tony Wine, Goffin and King, Duba, uh, Neil Sedaka, Bobby Darren, a lot of, a lot of great writers. Uh, Mm you know, like, you really learn how to write, you know, you know, and and that's what I, I, I was saying on my show even, because I'd have unknown bands to help them get an extra hundred dollars, you know, on the weekend, by getting them heard by a hundred thousand people. So it, it, I, I, I keep thinking I want to do something, but you know what, I, I have slowed down and, um, you know, I was sick for two years and now I'm almost, you know, hundred percent totally better, you know, and me. You know, uh, you know, for me, it's coming to peace with Woodstock. Boy, that was a hard trip to come down from. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and only only Mike and I have that connection. You know, so when we talk, you know, now that we are really friends, you know, mm-hmm. but we're, you know, it's 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 a good time. Good. Yeah, because only he could understand what what I saw, and only I could understand what he went through. You know, I saw the path and he couldn't build it. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it, it took, it, it's, I didn't have any knowledge of the hippie world and he was entered. I had Bert Summer who was in hair on Broadway, so Bert was a hippie, whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I don't know, 
Thank you for listening, and thank you, Artie Kornfeld, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 117 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Danny Salazi of The Characters and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2021 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.